Thank you, Ted and team. My name is Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here and join me in prayer as we continue in worship. Father, we do praise you. And Spirit, we praise you. And Son, we praise you. And what a, what a beautiful way to be able to start our day, to praise the Father and praise the Spirit and praise the Son. And Lord, we thank you for everyone who's participating today in so many different ways, in worship and singing and security and child care or not in child care or whatever the case may be today, Lord, we just uh, praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word, and we do ask that you'll open it to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we're doing right now is we are jumping back into the series in the book of Mark. We've been doing it throughout the summer. It's been a lot of fun. We've been focusing on encountering the incredible, encountering Jesus. And really, it's sort of a trilogy or a part one, part two, part three, and it builds as most stories do. It goes along and it gets bigger, bigger, bigger. But of course, like many stories, there's a surprise twist or a different ending than what people would expect. And so we've looked at some stuff in the book of Mark. We're looking at this person we expect to be a savior, a deliverer, like in the eyes of Rome, like we talked about last week. And we see some things that are pretty consistent with that. For example, as soon as he comes onto the scene in Mark chapter 1, verses Verse 12 and 13, he's confronting the most powerful enemy there is, Satan himself. He goes out in the wilderness, he's going to fight the enemy, he's going to defeat the enemy, and the one who comes out wins. In this sort of a fight, if you come out, that means you won. If you don't come out, that means you lost. And so Jesus comes out of the wilderness showing us that Jesus wins exactly right and we looked at some of those things as we saw him exercise demons as we saw him throw out legions of demons as we saw him enter into the strong man's house bind him steal his stuff and make off with the loot we see that jesus is powerful and authoritative and a lot of the first part of mark chapters one through seven are showing and demonstrating jesus's power and his authority. He does this over sickness, for example, when he heals lepers, something that nobody else could do. Jesus just sort of snaps his fingers and is done. It's gone. He does this with the deaf. He does this even when people merely bump into him. Power flows out of him and things change. He's powerful. He's authoritative. His word changes things over evil, over sickness, and even over nature itself as we review some of those miracles we remember that he calmed the storm that he walks on water and he even raises little girls from the dead jesus feeds the five thousand and he shows us that when the who is in the house the house don't matter there we go thank you when the who's in the house, the house don't matter. Jesus wins. He shows his power and his authority over evil, sickness, and nature. And then he demonstrates it not only over the supernatural realm, the, or the natural realm, but also the supernatural as well when he talks about sin. And he confronts the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day and demonstrates to them that the law is subject to him. That is whether it's Sabbath or fasting or harvesting or whatever the case may be, Jesus is still powerful and authoritative over even the law itself, the law that he himself composed with his father. 
He's authoritative over evil, sickness, nature, sin, and demonstrates the ability even to forgive sin itself. And so we learn from that section that Jesus' destiny determines our own, that God's tomorrow determines my today. Exactly right. God's tomorrow determines my today. The fact that Jesus has declared us innocent based on his blood means that my today has hope for tomorrow because God has a future in his hands and Jesus can declare the end from the beginning. He can say, see, look, I'll be with you today in paradise. This is what's going to happen based on what Jesus did. So Jesus wins when the who's in the house, the house don't matter. Jesus' destiny determines our own and God's tomorrow determines my today. Jesus' power and authority over all things, evil, sickness, nature, sin, and even in this part, we will learn death itself. Now, as you know, that's kind of the surprising twist that Jesus is crucified. The readers of uh, this story may or may not have known that, depending on how far the word traveled at that time. There's something different that's going to happen. They're expecting the Savior to come in and clear out the Romans, but instead, he's on a different path. And that path really begins today in chapter 14. This path is initiated with um, this special season in the Jewish calendar called the Passover. And essentially what it is, is it's a recollection or remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt, where on the final night of the plagues, the blood of the Passover lamb is put on the doorpost of the home. And when the angel of death sees the blood, instead of pronouncing judgment, he passes over that household and so they're celebrating these sacrificial lambs and they're looking at what the blood does and how it causes God's judgment to skip over your household and they're remembering his deliverance from bondage and slavery out into freedom into the promised land and that is the setting of the next two chapters the blood of the Passover lamb the God who will pass over and forgive based on that lamb. And deliverance out of bondage and slavery into the promised land. Mark chapter 14, beginning verses 1 through 9. It says this. It was now two days before the Passover and the accompanying feast, the feast of the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar for the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke it and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and wherever you, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there are basically two big steps that I'm going to give you today. So if you're taking notes or writing in your um, booklet for the kiddos, it's these two. Number one is costly and number two is beautiful. Number one is costly. Number two is beautiful. Before we jump right into those, I want to show you where we're at physically or geographically, just to give you a little bit more cultural context Um, Before I do, let me ask you this question, just for kicks. How many of you here would say you are from a small town? Anybody here from a small town? All right, good number. How many of you would say you're from a really small town? (laughs) Just curious. Shout it out. Well, let me just see. Let me guess. Is it below 5,000? Hold your hands up. Below 2,000? Hold your hands up. Below 1,000? Hold your hands up. Oh, I don't know. All right, good. Over there somewhere. Good. Today we're going to a small town. That small town is called Bethany. Here's a picture of where it's at in um, southern Israel. You see, after King David with the United Kingdom, then there was King Solomon, and then there was Rehoboam, his son, and the divided kingdom, and that didn't work. And so it was often like northern Israel versus southern Israel, north versus south. This is in the time of the Romans, so they own everything anyways. But we're down in the south. You see the Dead Sea in the south, that biggest body of water. There's a little one, a little bit higher, and that's the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee flows, from it flows a river down to the Dead Sea. That river is the Jordan River. And there's no outlet for the Dead Sea, so the Dead Sea is dead. (laughs) It's a stagnant pond. There's not a lot going on there, but that's the area of where Jerusalem and Judea is. This is southern Israel. This is the heartland, the capital, the big cities. And then as you move out from there, from Jerusalem, the city, and Judea, the area, then the next place you go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, right? That's a mission called the book of Acts. But you start down there in the south where the, all the lines come together because everything leads to Jerusalem. You can see it's in the hill country. That's why people always say you're going up to the temple because along the coast is the coastal plain. If you go to the right, to the east a little bit, there's also some plains. And so you're talking about the center heartland, the hill country, the southern epicenter, Jerusalem and Judea. Now, Jerusalem is the big city, but just outside of this, and you can download this map in our life group questions. I put it in there for those of you in life groups or those of you who aren't. Just go to the sermon site, download it, and it's yours. But you'll see right next to Jerusalem is a little suburb called Bethany. And you know how it works, right? Like there's a big city and property taxes and Property values and everything there is a little bit higher, but if you want to save some money and have a little bit longer commute and get out of that, then you move out into a little surrounding community nearby. And that was Bethany. Here's a picture of modern day Bethany. It's still there today. You can go and visit it and you can see it's up on a hill and it's really not that much to look at. It's just a little tiny suburb outside the big city of Jerusalem. 
And this is a famous city because a lot of different cool stuff happened there. I'm not going to give that away. Check the life group questions again. But one of the things that you may recall is this next slide is that when Jesus um, went on the triumphal entry, he came from Bethany across the Mount of Olives into the heartland, the city of Jerusalem. You see the picture of Herod's temple there. That's a big open space. And this was an important spot. But today we're going to this little town. If you're from a little town, you can identify with this and say, yeah, big things do, in fact, come from small places. Here we are in the city of Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Um, Thank you, Leah. Um, We don't know who Simon the leper was. Jesus healed a lot of lepers. It could have been the one he healed earlier in Mark, but we don't know. But he's in this house and we presume that he is well now because everybody's in the house and they wouldn't have been if he wasn't. And he was reclining at the table. Now, um, again, the two steps we're going to make today are costly and beautiful. So you see what happened is that a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. And it tells us very costly and she broke it and poured it over his head. Now, we may think, okay, cool. Some expensive perfume. I don't know what's expensive perfume today. Two, three, four hundred, five hundred dollars. But at this time period, this would have been much more expensive than that. What we're actually talking about is the equivalent to either A, someone's life savings, or B, at least a year's wages. And I know in our mindset, there's a big difference between that, but in theirs, there may not have been. This is a family heirloom. This is something that if you wanted to have nard, you had to go all the way to India. And you couldn't just jump on a plane or get in your car. You had to walk. And that's a long, long way from where we were at the Mediterranean Sea. And then once you got there, you had to find some spice merchant who knew what the nard plant was and had all these little spiky things. I think of it like cactus or aloe vera. Not exactly the same, but close enough for my mind. And they get the juice out of there and put it in a jar. And they're not going to FedEx it or ship it overnight and send it to the other place next day. Instead, they got to protect it. So they're going to seal it in such a way that if it spills while it's bouncing or turns over while it's bouncing around the back of that camel or whatever they took, it's not going to spill. And the only way to get that precious ointment out of there is to smack, break it. But if you're going to have precious ointment like that, you're not going to put it in some clay pot. Instead, you're going to put it in something valuable like alabaster. Now, what in the world is alabaster? Just think of it like Waterford crystal or something fancy like that. Really, really, really beautiful, fine, china, expensive stuff. Here is something, since you don't have a bank, since you don't have the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or any other ways of investing your money that you could take all of your family's money and put it in this and know that it would be secure despite fluctuations in the market or whatever else, this would be valuable. You could put it in a box, bury it in your backyard and know that if hard times came, you still had money in the bank. This is big stuff. So when she brings this out, it is of huge, huge expense. And then she does the one unthinkable thing. Instead of gently taking a single drop and being like, okay, here you go. Or here you go. That would have been special. 
That would have been an honor. That would have been a big deal. She shatters the lid and dumps the whole thing on Jesus. Her life savings, her family heirloom, the most valuable, precious thing she had, she pours out at his feet. Now you can imagine this. If, if, if you've ever got anything on you, whether it's water or anything else, you know that it's not exactly clean and neat and tidy. Some of this stuff is like dripping onto the floor. You know, uh, my son the other day, here's one for you. Um, he, he likes barbecue, okay? So just give it away. I got a teenage boy. And so we went from the little barbecues to the giant barbecues. You know, these aren't very valuable barbecues. But I actually stuck the barbecue on the top shelf of the refrigerator. And he said to me, Dad, I'm glad to see you're putting it where it belongs. And I'm like, why is that? like with the other drinks <laughs> I said oh my you know if there's barbecue on the floor I can imagine my teenager being like hey that's good stuff don't let that get away hold on you know and here is this valuable ointment spilled all over the floor and they're just thinking oh my goodness every single drop of that could have been sold don't just pour it out I mean if you're gonna put it on I'm fine but at least put like a little dab spread it out maybe you like go a little dab and a little dab let's do this logically what are you thinking mary aren't you thinking what's wrong with you and here they go and begin to criticize her and run her down and jesus says to them leave her alone man leave her alone you guys have missed it time and time again here she is, this woman who doesn't get to go to synagogue school, recognizing and doing what you should have done a long time ago. It's costly. They're right. It's not exactly logical. They're right. Could it have been sold and used to help other people? Yes. But here are people that recognized the cost of everything, the value of nothing. What was most valuable was sitting right in front of them. And Mary sees that and gives absolutely everything she has to that one. Reminds me a little bit of the story of Hernando Cortez who landed in the new world in Mexico to be precise. He was after the gold and wanted to be sure that he would secure it. So you probably heard the story, whether it's legend or pure history, we're not exactly sure. But once he landed, he set fire to all 11 of his ships as his 700 men sat there and watched. And the idea was, guys, there's no going back here. Like, Spain's a long ways away, and we're here, and if we're going to make it, we have to succeed, because I just sunk the ships. <laughs> and thus, we get the saying in our culture, burn the ships. You know, leave the past behind. Don't provide yourself an exit route, because if you do, you know in the back of your mind, oh, I could, you know, pull out of this thing at any time. I don't have to follow through. I can just pull out. This woman 
burn the ships. There's no exit route for her at this point. She's given everything she has to Jesus. All in. No going back. It's the most costly sacrifice other than her life that she could have possibly given. The disciples, of course, are bothered. But Jesus instead, in verse 6, tells them it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But what she did is beautiful. Why is it beautiful? Well, you can probably already tell. First of all, it's beautiful just because the extravagant nature of the gift. I mean, it's huge. It's over the top. It's overwhelming. And what that's driven by is her heart. And it shows you that Jesus cares so much more about the heart than he does anything else. Jesus cares about the heart, the motive, the thing behind it more than anything else. Not necessarily the outcome. This wasn't maximized potential here but this was maximized love and that's what jesus wants he loves this beauty that's coming pouring out of this woman's heart i particularly am impressed by the nature of the way in which the gospels portrays women i know that there's a lot in our culture uh, about what a woman is supposed to be and here i am a man waxing eloquent to bond not but Hear not me as a man, but hear what the Bible has to say. And what we see is God made male and female specifically in his image. He did this on purpose to best represent him. Pastor Chuck's going to be talking about that to parents coming up this Friday in an equipping seminar to help them deal with all the gender dysphoria and issues going around in our world. But here's the reality. In the beginning, God created male and female and female is beautiful and female is wonderful and female is absolutely just as valuable as any other part of God's creation. There is no difference in equality or essence, but there are some differences in function. And that's the way the Bible works. And it shows that and it plays it out. But what you see here, you got to understand, this is not a patriarchal thing that's looking down their noses at women instead every time the bible portrays them they're beautiful and intelligent and insightful did you hear that the bible portrays them as beautiful intelligent and insightful and we're not talking about beautiful like in our cultural standards understand this is not giving a physical description of this woman at all what is beautiful about her here is her heart I actually saw someone the other day, no kidding, driving down the road like this going, I'm like, oh man, it's not that important. (laughs) Please don't. You're much, you're much, much prettier if you don't crash. Let me assure you. (laughs) Don't do it. Drive. But look, our culture tells you your value comes from the outside, not the inside. The Bible tells you something far different. It's not that way. It never praises the external like that. Now, indeed, there's romantic, beautiful love in the Song of Solomon and a man for his wife. It's all good. But that is not the place where one finds their value or worth. Instead, what's beautiful here is what's pouring out from the inside of her. So first of all, you see this is beautiful because I think it's just beautiful because it's a woman. Secondly, it's beautiful because it's what's coming from the inside. But thirdly, understand that this woman, like a lot of women, 
has this intuition or this insight that all the men around them don't have. If you look at how many times Jesus has tried to explain to his disciples, which are men, like, guys, hear what I'm saying. Truly, truly, I say to you. That's like, hello, knucklehead, listen. <laughs> That's my Jeremy translation of verily, verily. Amen. Listen. Hear me, hear me, listen up, dude. What is wrong with you? This is like the third time I've said it literally over and over. Jesus is getting, and they're still like, no, Lord, this can't happen to you. Meanwhile, this woman's like, yeah, this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to anoint you for it. They're denying Jesus' path of his death, burial, crucifixion, and resurrection, and she is greasing the wheels. She's facilitating it. She's understanding it. She begins to get it way before anybody else. She understands. And there's this sensitivity about her. I mean, sometimes preachers get up and they, they criticize the church. You know, our church looks pretty good. I see male and female out here. But sometimes you go to some little church out in the country and it's a bunch of purple-haired little old ladies. You know, the preacher says, where's the men at? And rightfully so. They should be there. But there is something about it. I think there is something about the female heart that's especially sensitive and intuitive. And it gets certain things that we guys, we just miss. I go home and I talk to my wife and I say, hey, you see, I saw so-and-so today. And she's like, oh, and she starts asking me all these questions. And I'm like, those would have been great questions to ask. <laughs> I had no idea. We just talk business. We're just like, yeah, man. How about those chiefs? Go chiefs, right? Or Whatever. They have insight, they have understanding, they have beauty, they have personality, they have sensitivity, and and all this is coming out of her, and Jesus is like, this is beautiful, this is the way I made you to be, and these guys are going back to the books and saying, well, how much money is this, calculator in hand? No, stop, dude. Her heart here is coming out, and it matters. This is beautiful. This is not the cultural picture of some scantily clad woman seducing Jesus. This is a beautiful act of the heart. This is not the cultural picture of some overly aggressive, assertive personality trying to demonstrate their dominance and prove that they're just as good as anyone else is not the CEO, it is not the superhero that wants to go in and beat everyone else down, but instead it is the gentle, meek, humble, kind, and beautiful woman who you just so happen most often to find seated at the feet of Christ. That's why it's actually confusing for some commentators because they're like, wait, which anointing was this? Because there was a sinful woman and she did something like this, but there's nothing about sinning here. Yeah, this is a different woman. And wait, there was another anointing here and is that this? And, and they're confused because there's so many women who get this all the way through. <laughs> and they keep anointing Jesus. This is not the sinful one. This is a later anointing. And they just get it, man. What about the woman who Jesus almost practically insults and said, it's not right for me to take the 
bread and give it to the dogs. And she stands up and says, actually, even the dogs eat from your table. Jesus says, blessed are you. Wow, woman, you get it. Man, do you get it? You see what that is? It's called humility. And it's called bold humility. It's called risky humility. It's called brave humility. We think humility is like this, I got stomped under the tire or the tread and I'm run down. But real humility says, yeah, I'm that weak, but you're that strong. And that's scary. No guy wants to say that. <laughs> Every guy wants to say, oh, I'm all that. And she's like, yeah, not really. I'm not worried about what you guys say because I know you're going to criticize me when I do this. You're going to think it's dumb. You're going to think it's illogical. But I love him. And I'm going for it. And I'm not even going to defend myself. I'm going to let him do that. Do you think there's a lesson in there? When you're so self-forgetful because of your extravagant love that the only thing you can think about is Jesus and you go all out and pour everything on him when someone else comes back around and criticizes you for it you don't even have to reply you let him answer on your behalf and trust that he sees the heart and he knows what's really beautiful and he will affirm it over and over again it's beautiful it's a woman she's insightful she's countercultural she's distinct She's showing extravagant love. I've seen this in my life. I have seen this in my life. I have seen this in my wife. I was going to embarrass her a little bit. Little bit, little bit. I already used one. I got to play on all three. Um, we, We had to move to Canada like several years ago. And it's really expensive to ship a piano, right? And you know my wife, like... She's a pianist, right? She had a grand piano. She sold her piano so that we could go to Canada. Now, you may not understand what that is. But that's like the alabaster jar. That is the stuff. And she sells this thing and gives it up so we can follow God's call. I've seen it so many times in ministry when people give up something that you're like, whoa, as a pastor, you're not supposed to do that. But I almost want to say like, hey, what are you doing? Are you sure? That's big. Like... Tithing's pretty cool. You're giving 10%, but you what? That doesn't make sense. I got no, I'm not supposed to react that way. I'm supposed to be like Mary and be like, yeah, but whoo. And in ministry, you know, it's not for profit. So if, if you ever want to see these things, go into ministry. But let me assure you, don't go into ministry just because you want to see these things. <laughs> I, I'm... I'm torn as to whether to recommend ministry or not. Only go into ministry if God wants you to. But once you're there and you're in these stretch spots and maybe you don't even have to be in ministry to it. You've just been in life and all of a sudden there's these crazy moments where you're like, well, this is not going to happen. And boom, someone from the church, God works in their heart with the Holy Spirit to extravagantly give. The only way to explain that is the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel extravagant love produces extravagant giving. Extravagant love produces extravagant giving. That's just what it does. 
When people love that passionately, that sincerely, when they're so focused on something other than, poof, that's just, they give. They just give. And it's beautiful. So number one, it is costly. Number two, it's beautiful. And one more thing I need to point out, it's absolutely beautiful about this, is if I talk about extravagant love and extravagant giving, what else would that relate to but for the gospel? For God so that he gave his only son. Extravagant love, extravagant giving. I mean, he made the world and so he loves it, of course, but then it's broken and messed up. Why would you love it then? But you loved it so much that even when it was dead in its sins, you demonstrated your love for us and gave your son? You can't give any more than that. That is outrageous. And you know how God gave his son? Listen to this. Here's the connection. Ready? What did the woman do to the jar? It was what? Broken and what happened to Jesus? beautiful because it's the gospel he was broken and poured out for us unless you think this is just pastor jeremy getting creative here with his interpretation look again at verse three of chapter 14 verse three of mark chapter 14 says this and while he's at bethany in the house of simon the leper as he's reclining at the table woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and broke it and poured it over his head. That's chapter 14, verse 3. Now look at 14, verse 22. The institution of the Lord's Supper says this. As they were eating and drinking, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, this is my body. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Extravagant love gives extravagantly. Same Greek words, same everything. The author's tying it together on purpose. There's no question about it. Jesus was broken and spilled out for us. I'm not the only one who's pointed this out. In fact, there's a musician by the name of Steve Green. How many of you have heard of Steve Green? All right, let me try something different. How many of you have heard of NF? All right, just making sure I got both sides here, right? Steve Green was a musician from back in the day. And music is important. Music is valuable. That's why we sing songs about God, our creator, and his love for us. Because it comes back. I was reading through this passage, and I hadn't heard Steve Green, I confess, in a long time. But when I got into this broken and spilled out, I was like, oh, he knew this. Steve Green got this in the 80s. One of my nephews calls me 80s. He's like, hey, 80s. Oh, man. (laughs) Steve Green says this. Here's the words to his song, Broken and Spilled Out. He says, one day 
a plain village woman, driven by love for her Lord, recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room, like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb. Broken and spilled out just for love of you, Jesus, my most precious treasure lavished on thee. Broken and spilled out and poured at your feet in sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for thee. Lord, you are God's precious treasure. Now here's the switch from the lady to the son. Lord, you are God's precious treasure His loved and perfect son sent here to show me the love of the father. Just for love it was done. And though you were perfect and holy, you gave up yourself willingly. You spared no expense for my pardon. You were used up and wasted for me. Broken and spilled out just for love of me, Jesus. God's most precious treasure lavished on me. Surely goodness and love will follow me. You anoint my head with oil. You were broken and spilled out and poured out at my feet. In sweet abandon, Lord, you were spilled out and used up for me. In sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for thee. Amen. Here's a picture of a beautiful woman who shows us extravagant love. The love of a savior. Broken and spilled out. It's costly. Man, it was expensive. Boy, was it beautiful. I want to challenge you today based on God's love for you. Based on the incredible motivation of God. On Jesus' overwhelming act of giving. What will you do? What will you do? It may not make sense to you or to your friends, but what will you do? What will you give? What does it mean for you to be broken and spilled out for him? Each of us has something to give. Each of us has something to offer. And God is calling you today to say, hey, look at what my son did. Look at what this lady did. Now, what will you do? It's costly. I'm not going to lie. It's expensive. It's beautiful. And every time the gospel is preached, man, you can lean into that. Say, Lord, let me be broken and spilled out humbly for you. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for Jesus, your son, who has poured out for us. Thank you for the good things you give, Lord. I just pray that as we feast today and we enjoy the chili and the fellowship and celebrating one another and you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love you extravagantly and love others as a result. We can move one step closer to Jesus, be united as a body, and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.